0: There's an old illustration that's probably pretty well known, and you may have have heard it, but there's a story of a young pastor who took his first pastorate in Kentucky. And on his first Sunday, he got up, and he preached on that first Sunday about the evils of tobacco. The minute he was through preaching, some deacons and some others came up to him and said, Now, pastor, you need to understand something now. He said, In Kentucky, half this state grows tobacco. And you're going to step on a lot of toes if you preach on tobacco, so you need to stay off that subject. young preacher got it. Second Sunday got up and he preached on the evils of alcohol. And they got up and said, uh, have you ever heard of Jack Daniels? Uh, in Kentucky, we understand what that is. In fact, a third of the people in this county are involved in the liquor industry. Now, you're going to get some people hurt and upset, and you need to stay off the subject of alcohol. The young pastor said, I got it, I got it. Third Sunday he got up and he preached on the evils of gambling. Same group came up to him and said, now pastor, you need to understand something. He said, half the people in our county raise thoroughbred horses. Have you ever heard of the Kentucky Derby? Then you need to stay off of gambling because that can be offensive to people. The young pastor said, okay, I got it, I understand. Fourth Sunday, he got up and preached on the evils of scuba diving in international waters. Now, anytime anybody talks about stewardship or about money, people get uptight. But I like what John Maxwell says. If you're going to have a giving church, you've got to take the stew out of stewardship. We talk a lot about giving at this time of the year. We talk about giving to others, about investing in others. We spend our money to give gifts to other people. Oftentimes we do that in hopes that they will give something back to us, which is the absolute wrong motivation for giving at Christmas. So that I will give so that I can get is the poorest motive that anybody can possibly have for giving. Jesus gives us an illustration in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, of the issue of the heart when it comes to giving and to receiving. And he helps us to understand that if we are to be the church that he calls us to be, then as stewards of the resources that God has given us, in the matter of giving and receiving, we need to have the perspective of God on it. And so he begins in verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now there's a word here after hired that I want you to notice, verse 2. When he had agreed, that word means to set a contract with. These people were working under contract. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right... I will give to you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me? There's that contract word again. For one denarius, take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. The components of the parable are there in front of you. The owner is the father, the workers represent us, their work is their calling, verse 4. They're called to do a job. The pay has to do with rewards for being faithful and productive. But there's a problem in verse 10. Their attitude toward their service is they expected to receive more. Now, if you read this parable in its context, it is in the context of the encounter with Jesus with the rich ruler. And Jesus said, you've got to sell all you have, and then you can inherit eternal life, and he wasn't willing to do that. And so on the heels of this, Jesus comes to teach his own disciples about this matter of stewardship and about living and and about a perspective on life. If You take a parallel passage in Mark 10, verse 24, Jesus says how hard it is for those who trust in wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is a steward? A steward is a manager of God's resources. When somebody talks about stewardship, he's talking about you and I being a steward. And to be a steward, we are to be managers of God's resources. It is the management of our time, our talent, and our resources for the glory of God. Now, if I am a good steward, then I have a healthy financial picture of what my life is supposed to be. I have a healthy picture of how I'm supposed to live, what my choices are, how I make my choices, what I give away, what I keep. All of that comes under the boundaries and the headings of stewardship. It is a healthy view, a healthy attitude, a healthy outlook and respect for the resources that God has given me. I love this quote by Elmer Towns. Families are financially unhealthy because their attitude toward money not because of their circumstances you heard the story about the little boy who had two quarters he was going to take one to church and then after church he was going to get an ice cream cone with the other one that's when an ice cream cones were a quarter and so he's walking down the street and he's got his two quarters in his hands and he drops one of his quarters and it rolls down a drain and he looks down at the drain and he sees a quarter down in the bottom of the drain and he can't get it and he looks up to God and says well God there's your quarter You know, that's how we treat the Lord sometimes. Lord, if anybody's going to get cut off in my dealings, it's going to be you. I'm going to make sure I get my ice cream. I'm going to make sure I get all that I want. But you're going to be the one that gets cut off. Now let me give you a couple of statements here. First of all, stewardship or giving is not a magic formula. It's not a rabbit's foot that gives you a hedge on other people who don't do it. Stewardship's not a, not a rabbit's foot. Boy, Lord, if I tithe, then I'll be healthy. Now, the prosperity gospel people preach that, but that's not what the gospel preaches. The gospel never says that if I give to God what is due God, I'm going to have an edge on pagans. Now, that's no reason to give. Secondly, stewardship is a matter of attitude, and it is an act of worship. Stewardship's a matter of attitude, but it's an act of worship. When I view my life as an act of worship, not just what I do on Sunday, but when I view my resources, my life, my investments, my home, my car, whatever it is, as belonging to God, then I begin to view my life and what I give as an act of worship, and what I keep, I keep not because I have to have it, but because God allows me to. And it gives us the freedom to give away and to not be land grubbers and and stingy, but to be people who are giving and willing to give to other people. Now, in this parable, there are two kinds of workers. Number one, we've already mentioned that. Those who were given a contract, they agreed on a salary and they agreed to work for that salary. I want to tell you something, if people would just follow that biblical principle alone, there would never be a strike by any organization in America. If they just operated by, you agreed to work for this, you work for it, and you be happy about it. Now, if we followed that principle, we wouldn't have athletes in the last year of their contract renegotiating, or else they're going to take their money and walk. You see, we become so possessive and so obsessed with what are you going to do for me that nobody honors a contract anymore. Contracts mean nothing anymore. You can't have a handshake agreement anymore because everybody breaks even legal agreements. But these people made a legal agreement, you pay me this much, I'll work for you. No questions asked. They didn't ask about what happens down the road. They didn't ask about what happens five years from now or five weeks from now. They just said, okay, I'll work for you for that much money. But then there's a second group, those who had no contract and agreed to take whatever the owner thought was right. Whatever the owner thought was right, they said, you know, we'll go to work for you and whatever you think is fair, you pay us. Now, it has been my policy in every church I've ever worked in that I have never asked my salary before I agreed to come to work at that church. Because I don't think a man called to ministry ought to be worried about, what are you going to do for me? I think you just got to find out, is this what God's calling you to do? Because if you do it on the basis of, what are you going to do for me? What are my perks? What are my benefits? Before you've already made your decision, then you're working for greed, not for God. And so you have to come to the point of being aware of why you do what you do. And so these people come for the time for the wages to be paid, and the last were paid first, and the first were paid last. And the problem is, everybody got the same thing. And those who were hired at the first thought, this is not fair. They were furious. But they had no right to complain because that's what they agreed to work for. They had lost their argument. They had lost their case now there's probably a court in Florida they could take it to and appeal it but they had lost their case ah oh, don't even get me started <laughs> now to fully understand this parable go back to chapter 19 and verse 27 because this is the context of Jesus making this statement and remember stewardship is not just about your money it's about your life it's about your time your talent, your resources Chapter 19, verse 27, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Now Peter must not have left everything because the first thing he said after Jesus died was I'm going back to fishing. So he must have kept his boats on the side somewhere, probably put them in dry dock just in case this thing with Jesus didn't work out, which is the way a lot of people approach their Christian life. I'm not going to cut all my strings because if I cut all of them, then I don't have any backup plan. He said, We have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? You know what Simon Peter wanted? He wanted a Christianity that paid off. Simon Peter wanted results from his investments. He, he was quid pro quo, payment upon services rendered. Simon Peter said, All right, Lord, I've given this. Now, where's the paycheck? I've done this for you. Now, where's the benefit? I've served you with this, where's my perk? What am I going to get out of this? How are you going to help me with this? I've done this for you, what are you going to do for me? And in the context of that question, Jesus gives this parable, and quite honestly, he gives a parable basically saying, I'm not here to barter with you, and I'm not here to bargain with you, and I'm not here to reason with you. I am here as the owner to present to you an opportunity to serve me. Now, on the surface, this parable looks unfair because we live in a democracy, and we live in a land where every vote counts, even if you're too stupid to vote. And so we think, well, that guy that's been working the longest, he deserves more than somebody else. God says, you're thinking with flesh. You're not thinking the way I think. Does a person that's been saved 50 years deserve more of the Holy Spirit than the person that got saved yesterday? The answer to that question is no. Does a person that's been saved for 25 years and active in the church deserve any more of the blessings of God than the person that's just fallen in love with Jesus for the first time? No. No. And so the purpose of this parable is to tell us this is not about what's fair. Everybody's talking about what's fair in our society today. This is not about what's fair. This is not about bargaining with God. This is not about this person I think subjectively deserves more than this person. And and in looking at it in my perspective, I think this person deserves more than that person. That's subjective. Here's the bottom line. Jesus teaches us here that we are to work and to serve and to give without any thought of reward. Now, boy, that will rattle your cultural cage if you think about it. That means that I'm supposed to give to God, I'm supposed to serve God, I'm supposed to minister to other people whether I get anything for it or not. Because it is my obligation as a child of the king under his lordship to do what I do not because I get something out of it but because God has given me the privilege of doing something that's eternal. I reread again the book Duty by Bob Green last night. And Bob Green wrote a book about his father who was a, uh, retired as a major in the army fought in World War II. And it's about his father and Colonel Paul Tibbetts, who was the commander, uh, the ended, was the colonel, ended up a brigadier general in the Air Force that dropped the first atomic bomb. And in that interview, when he talks to Tibbets back and forth, and he sits over a table and talks to him, one of the things that he says to Tibbetts is he talks about why they did what they did. You know, and Tibbetts says, I did what I did because it was my job. And he, and he said, did anybody ask you how you felt about it? He said, my feelings didn't matter. I was under order's. I was told to do a job, to strap myself to a seat, to fly a plane, and deliver a message. And that's what I did. And he said, you know, the difference between my generation and the younger generation is when my generation got out of World War II and we went to work, when we went to a company, we said, and they said, why should I hire you? We said, we think we can help you build your business our first interest was in building the company. He said, today's workers, their first interest is, what are you going to do for me? How much vacation time do I get? What are my benefits? What are my perks? How many sick days? What kind of health insurance do you provide? He said, today's generation only cares about what the company is going to do for them. Our generation cared about what we could do to help the company. And that is a problem that faces the church today. There's a generation of people who have given to the church all their life because they wanted to help the company. And there's a whole generation of us that have grown up having been given everything and grown up in times of prosperity. And the only thing we want to know is, what's the church going to do for me? If I do something for you, what are you going to do for me? Jesus comes emphatically and says, the work itself is enough. The joy of giving is the gift itself. That when I serve God, when I'm a steward of the things that God has given me, that whether I ever get any benefit out of it or not, that God in his sovereignty has given me the privilege and the responsibility of serving him. And so I do it with joy, not with an expectation that I'll get something. And so let's go to the essence of the parable, and I want to give you about seven things here. Because in this parable, he's talking about what it means to be a good steward. And he never says in here, you ought to give because it's a tax deduction. Now, that's a perk. That's a benefit that you get. But I want to tell you something, folks. I believe you ought to give whether you get a tax deduction or not. If your only motive is to keep from paying Uncle Sam money, that's a pretty sorry motive for eternal business. You know, you ought to give just because... God's first given to you. And so he doesn't say that you give to get a tax deduction. He doesn't say that you serve so that people will praise you and tell you how wonderful you are. He says the believer gives because God's given. God gave these men an opportunity. The believer is not to serve to anticipate a reward. We have nothing to offer God until God has given us this opportunity. These workers came and complained about their wages. What they did was they showed the owner their heart. At their core, they were selfish. Warren Weir'sby said, if we serve him only for the benefits, we will miss the best blessing he has for us. We must trust him unreservedly and believe that he will always give what is best. We had nothing to offer God until he gave us an opportunity. These workers just hanging around in the marketplace. They weren't going to make any money that day. And the guy comes up, the owner comes up, and he says, you know what, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Would you like it? Sure. Tell us how much you're going to pay us, and then we'll decide. You know there's a lot of people like that in our culture. You tell me how much you're going to do for me, then I'll decide if I'm going to do anything for you. Jesus said, that's not the way you're going to be blessed And these people didn't get as many blessings as they probably could have because of their attitude. God gave them the opportunity. Secondly, the field is the Lord's. Whenever God calls us to labor, whether it's at the church or whether it's with individuals or whether it's in a Sunday school class or wherever we are called to labor, that is God's field. In your job, when you're called to go out and make a living and to have a job, you are laboring in God's field. God has made you an evangelist. God has made you a witness in that community. I hear people say sometimes, you know, I just need to get another place to work. I'm the only Christian in my place. where It is just terrible. I'm the only believer there. Now, listen, man, you ought to be excited that God believes in you enough that he puts you in that situation. That he trusts you enough to be the only believer, the only salt, the only light in that environment. Quit whining about it and rejoice that God has entrusted you with those people and let God use you in that environment. You'll find out working with a bunch of Christians may not be all as cracked up to be. Thirdly, the fruits of our labor belong to the Lord. Now, let's follow this if it's his field if we are his body if our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit then whatever we harvest in this field belongs to God doesn't belong to us it is for us to give away it is for us to invest in others it's very easy for us to be possessive say well that's mine I work for that I deserve that that's why we don't like the names on Sunday school classrooms because we had a Sunday school classroom in, uh, in Spartanburg and the men put a lock on that door different from any other lock in the church and they brought chairs in and bolted their chairs down. So this is our room. My pastor Fred Lowry said, uh-uh. He kicked the door in, unbolted the chairs and left the floor bare the next week. He said, you need to remember something. This church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. And no room in this church belongs to you. No carpet in this church belongs to you. No chair in this church belongs to you. No wall in this church belongs to you. It belongs to God. That is what it is here for. It's not here for you. It's here for Him. What we do here is for Him. You start putting your name on it, and God starts taking His name off of it. The fruit of the labor belongs to God. Fourthly, the Lord judges us by our faithfulness, not our fruit. You you see, if those that had been working longer had obviously done more, and those that had only come in at the last hour had obviously done less, they had less to show because they had worked less. But God does not judge us by our fruit. He judges us by our faithfulness. There are people who serve in parts of the world where they can evangelize and witness and plant seeds for 10, 15, 20 years, and they only see one or two people come to faith in Christ. There are other people, they just open the doors and people come because of an environment or whatever is going on. And God doesn't say, I judge you by your numbers of baskets that you bring. I judge you by your numbers of professions of faith. I judge you by your faithfulness. God judges us by how faithful we are. He has given us an opportunity to work. Some of us will be more productive than others. Some of us will bear more fruit than others. But God judges us not by the size of our ministry, but by the faithfulness to our calling. God will judge Sherwood, not by the size of her ministry, but how faithful we have been to what God has called us to do and the opportunities that he has given us. Now let me give you a statement here that I want you to write down. I don't think it's in your notes. The smallest gift that means sacrifice is greater than the larger gift that does not. The smallest gift that means sacrifice is greater than the largest gift that does not. The reason Jesus told the story of the widow's mite is to remind us it is not the size of our gift, it is the size of the heart that gives it. The smallest gift that means sacrifice is greater than the largest gift that does not you know I see you know, I see things in society they just disgust me everybody talks about Ted Turner being such a wonderful person he gave a billion dollars away do you know that by giving a billion dollars away he actually made money he wasn't sacrificed Ted Turner's a good businessman he understands good business principles but to call him a person who sacrificed people "Oh, he gave away a million dollars Bill Gates gave away 45 billion dollars big deal when you're worth $900 billion, $45 billion is a drop in the bucket. But I'm going to tell you something. God will notice the gift of the person who's making hourly wages or the person who's getting by on fifteen dollars or $20,000 a week that is faithful to do what God told them to do. God notices that gift and honors that gift far more than he does the gift of the person that gives away something he doesn't need anyway. You see, it's not the size of the gift, it's the size of the heart. And so the Lord judges us by our faithfulness, not by our fruit. Number five, there are too many laborers who are unproductive. Look at verse six. Why have you been standing here idle all day long? There's work to do. Why have you been standing here idle all day long? The, the, the standard uh, equation for the church is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. If the Lord visited Southern Baptist churches today, his first question would be, why are you standing here idle? With a community to reach, with lives to touch, with ministries to start, with opportunities before you, why are you leaning against the wall waiting for somebody to come in and just give you something? Why aren't you doing what I've called you to do? I think the the, the embarrassing question that we will be asked when we stand before God one day is why did you waste your life on things that were not eternal? Why did you spend your resources instead of investing them in the kingdom? George Burns said, it's easier to make a paying audience laugh. They get dressed up, they put on a tie, they get in their cars and they pay a lot of money to come see your act. I've found that any audience that doesn't pay is very critical. <laughs> True in the church. The people who complain the most in the church, you watch it. There are people who don't serve, don't give, don't attend faithfully because the people who are serving and giving and attending faithfully, they got too much to do to complain. You show me somebody that whines and complains and I'll bet you anything I got that that person is not faithful in their resources and they're not a good steward because they want to deflect attention off of themselves and try to throw it on somebody else. Number six, the owner has a right to do what he pleases. Verse 15, the new living says, Do I not have a right to do what I want with my own money? The owner says, don't I have a right to do? Don't I have a right to give this however I want to give it? Don't I have a right to do with it whatever I want to do with? If I want to pay somebody who's been working all day the same thing and then I pay somebody who's just worked an hour, I've got a right to do that. It's my money. It's my vineyard. It's my yard. These are my plants, my trees. I own it. You just work for me. So I've got a right to do whatever I want to do. You see, part of our problem is we don't really think God has a right to do whatever he wants to do by the way, whatever he does, he does it well. Even when we don't agree with it. You see, we think that we have a right to tell God how to bless and how to invest and how to give back. God never gave us that right. He says, it's mine. I have a right to do with it whatever I want to do. You say, well, I've heard people say, well, it is so unfair that you Christians say that in the end God's going to burn up the world. It's his world. He can do with it whatever he wants to. It's so, it was so cruel. How could a loving God have sent a flood way back there? It's his world. Man was messing up his world. Man was messing up his creation. God said, you know, I've had it. That's my yard. That's my tree. That's my field. That's my mountain. You see, I can't tell you what to do on your property, but I can tell you what you can't do on mine. You know, I can put a no trespassing sign up on my yard and tell you, you come in, there are going to be consequences. God's got the same right. God has a right to all that He owns to determine how what He owns is used. Number seven, the owner's plans are for good. Now, what's amazing is in verse 15, he asks this question Do I have a right, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? But he also says, I am generous. Nobody's ever going to stand before God and say, God, you owe me. I tell you what, you didn't pay me enough, you didn't do enough for me when I was on earth, so now you're gonna have to pay up. The reason that people don't understand God's ownership is because they don't understand that God cares, and God is generous. Now I serve, not out of seeking a reward, but I've also served long enough to know that there is a reward. I don't serve for the reward, that's just a side benefit. I serve, I give, I invest, not so that somebody will come and do something for me, but I do it because something's been done for me. God gave His Son for me. I do not give gifts to my children asking them to give me gifts in kind. They don't have the resources to do that. I have greater resources than they have. Whatever resources they have are resources I've provided for them. And so when my children give back to me at Christmas, they, in effect, are taking what I've given them so that they can give back. None of it was theirs. It's all mine. And as the owner, as the steward of our household, I give to them, and when they give back to me, I'm blessed. But I do not give to them so they'll give back to me. You see, what you do when you love somebody is you give to them because you're generous and you're gracious and you're good. Not so you can say, well, I wonder how much they're going to spend on me. It is not the size of the gift It is the size of the heart that matters. One of the greatest gifts I ever got was a little bitty pencil holder made out of tongue depressors that says, Dad's pencil holder. Now, that is worth more to me than a designer shirt or expensive clothes Or anything else that I could be given. Because that little cup holder, that little pencil holder, was given to me by a child that loved me, not that felt obligated that, well, you're going to do something for me. I guess I got to do something for you. It was a gift with no strings attached, just a gift of love. And God says, you know what? I'm generous. I am generous. I'm going to be generous to you. Don't you believe I'll be generous to you? But most of us think God is Scrooge. God is generous. Number eight, faithfulness will be rewarded. Nobody's going to be shortchanged. Verse four, he says, Go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. Luke 6, 38, Given it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now listen to what he says in Luke six thirty eight. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. There's a pastor who had a church member who came to him and said, you know, I'd really like to tithe, I'd really like to give, but, but I just can't afford to do it because if I start tithing, I can't pay all my bills for the month. And because if I take 10% out, then there's no way I can pay my bills. And so this pastor said to this church member, let me ask you something. If you will by faith, write a check, and tithe, will you do that if I promise you that as your pastor, I will make up whatever the difference is at the end of the month? And the guy said, yeah, I'd do that. He said, oh, I see. You trust me, a mere mortal, to make up the difference more than you trust the sovereign Lord of the universe who owns a cattle on a thousand hills to make up the difference. The next week, the man wrote a check. 28 years later, he's still giving to God. And he's never missed paying his bills. The scripture says, Trust me, try me, prove me, says the Lord. And see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing which you cannot even begin to comprehend. But I want to tell you something. If he never opens up the windows and blesses me another day of my life, I have no reason to complain because I have had the privilege of serving in his vineyard. I have had the privilege of investing in his work. I have had the privilege of putting my hand to the plow to do something that will last beyond my life. I have had the privilege of giving, sometimes out of my riches and sometimes out of my poverty. But I have had the privileges of doing it, and I want to tell you something. God's blessed that faithfulness. Not always in material ways. But God's blessed that faithfulness with relationships and with opportunities that I could not put a price tag on. The things that I've been allowed to see and the things that I've been allowed to do and the blessings that God has brought my way have not been because I gave a certain amount of money. It's been because I've recognized that God is the owner of all things. That any gift, that any ability, that any talent, that any job, that He has given me. I am to be a steward of that as long as He gives me opportunity to serve Him. And so whether I am a long-term laborer or a short-term laborer, I know that my God is generous. And I know that I can trust Him to meet my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. You know why most of you Spend your life anxious. And you know why the number one reason for divorce in America is not immorality, it's finances. You know why? Because you've never trusted God to supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. And you are miserable, and you're unhappy, and you're uncomfortable when pastors talk about money for one simple reason. You don't believe that God is good. I am going to tell you something. God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Even on days when it's dark and uncertain.